This morning, uh, we're starting a new series as well, just for a few weeks. As we uh, gather together as one church for these next four weeks before going back to two services, and we're going to be talking about who we are as a church. Uh, so with that, let me pray, and then we're going to dive in, and uh, it should be a good, good morning and a good few weeks. Let me pray. Father, thanks for Jesus. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your help today. Uh, thank you, too, just for who you are, for your consistency, for your faithfulness, for your love for us when we don't deserve it. Holy Spirit, I pray you'd help us uh, learn from your words, see uh, who you've created us to be and what you've called us to do. I pray, Holy Spirit, you'd help me as I teach and as we look at your word, help us understand it, apply it to our lives. And we pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, there was a pumpkin farmer strolling through his field one day. And he was going through and the pumpkins were starting to come up, the vines were growing, and you know, all these leaves all over and no real fruit other than just kind of just very small scale on the pumpkins he was growing. Well, as he's walking through his field, he noticed this, this kind of big glass jar and it just caught his eye, it kind of shimmered off the sun. And so kind of playfully, he took it and he took one of the fruit of the pumpkin and he, he kind of gently took that pumpkin and put it inside that jar and just left it there. Well, fast forward a few months, he comes back to his field and he's walking through and they're starting to pick the pumpkins and take them out and uh, all this stuff. And he had forgotten all about that jar, but he gets to that spot and he was a little bit startled because he looked down and he noticed the jar hadn't broke. Instead, the pumpkin filled the shape of the jar and, and the pumpkin took on its shape inside of this jar. Uh, you know, this is actually something you could do. You can buy, I found out, you can buy molds for different fruit and gourds and things like that online. Like in Japan, they sell square watermelons. Did you know that? This is really weird, but it's kind of cool too. And not only that, but you can actually get on some websites, if you search on Amazon later, you can find uh, molds to make your pumpkins grow and look like somebody's face so that you don't have to carve it this fall. I kind of like that idea. There's a few different ones. You can even find ones of celebrities, but this farmer, he just, he didn't know this. He just put his pumpkin inside a jar and it grew and it, it filled up the jar. It was kind of rather strange that the jar didn't break. It just took on that shape. Well, here's what I would commend and challenge you to think about, I guess. Uh, I think the problem for that little pumpkin not being able to break out of that jar can be the problem in local churches. Here's what I mean. Rather than growing to their full potential, rather than growing into all that God created them and designed them to become, they conform, and Christians do this too, not just churches, they conform to outside and external pressures that say, no, you can only be this. You can only grow to this point. And uh, they get stuck in molds and models and glass jars create all kinds of barriers that keep them from really growing to their full potential. And you know, it's easier, maybe more today than at any other time, thanks to social media, where you see all these different ideas of what life should be like. And 
You see it as your, in your individual life. You see it in the lives of churches. And well, what, what should it be? And we can think, okay, well, that's, that's what I need to do then. I need to be just like that. But really what you're doing, you're putting your life, you're putting it in a jar, and you're constricting yourself to the design for something else. When God wants to grow you into all that he has you to become, and it's easier today to be more about jar sharing than it is, especially sometimes in a church, than to be about really understanding your DNA as a church and who we are. So here's what we wanna do, we wanna break the mold. We, we wanna think and know who we uniquely are as a church family. That's why we stuck together just for one service for these next few weeks. And uh, where, not only that, but not only who we are, but where we're going and what's next. So over the next four weeks, uh, we're gonna talk about our DNA as a church and who we uniquely are, not the cookie cutter of every other church in the world, but who we are, our unique DNA as a church. And uh, really, I gotta tell you, this journey started probably 12 to 13 years ago as I was working on my master's degree. And then out of that, there were just some things that um, I began really evaluating our church at that time as I moved into the lead role and looking at our mission statement and our programming and, and just everything, all of which was okay and was, was fine, but it was generic. It was just kind of what everybody else was doing, just what we thought we should do, you know? And so a long process began, first in my own spirit for a couple years and then with some other trusted leaders in our church and just asking the question, who are we? And you need to know this wasn't a process of like, oh, we gotta come up with something of who we are and dream it up, you know? No, this is a process of discovery of who are we? How's God uniquely made us? Um, who are we? Because it's easy to just kind of, Sarah mentioned it earlier, you know, even when it comes to like uh, hanging fruit on the tree and trying to be something that you're not, sometimes we can be that as a church too. We can try to do things that we're not, or we can try to be a group that we're not. And who, who are we? So how do you evaluate that? Well, by the way, uh, this clearly is a message for those of you, this is home, Wawasee Bible's home. If you're with us as a guest today, we're really glad you're here. You get to kind of just sit in with the family today and hear some of these things. And we're gonna to get to God's word here shortly as well. But just so you know what we're talking about. But a couple things come to mind as we try to figure this out. First, what's our unique place? Well, we're in rural Indiana, rural Northern Indiana, uh, Milford, Wawasee, Syracuse, Kosciuszko, Elkhart County, in the Midwest. Our place is, I, I kind of describe it when I talk to guys not from around here, I say, I live in a place that's urban. It's not really rural, in the rural, rural, rural sense, but it's not really urban either, or suburban, it's kind of urban. We live in a rural area, but everybody kind of lives a suburban lifestyle. We drive all over the place to go to work and go out to eat and do different things. And then our place is also, if you look at some of the demographics of our community, it's um, more and more full of broken homes and families. Uh, there's indifference. 10 years ago, I would have said there was great indifference to the gospel. Now I would say there's growing ignorance of the gospel in our communities. Uh, generally speaking, especially Milford is lower income 
compared to other parts of the county and uh, even compared to the rest of Indiana for the most part. Uh, there's a lot of drugs and addiction and pain and hurt. And yet what's really strange is in our unique spot, there's also these scattered pockets of great wealth. And, and it's just such a unique area in that sense. That's our place. But then as we're discovering who are we uniquely as a church, we don't just look at place, we gotta look at people. And I'm not talking people in the community, I'm talking people in our church, all of us. Well, what's unique about us? What are our unique gifts and abilities and vocations and education? Well, generally our, our church family historically has been pretty family oriented. There's a number of generational families in our church. We're blended for the most part in age. Like uh, right here uh, in this room, we're, we're fairly full. But if you would uh, go down the hall to the kids area right now, I gotta be quick today because if not, there's gonna be a mutiny probably from all the kids workers. Right, Tricia? Probably. There, there, there's just a wide gamut of ages in our church, which is great. I think we have a church, and I hear this often and did uh, from those who've spoken here at different times, that we're a church that loves to hear God's word taught. It loves to learn from, from the Bible, not just from clever ideas. And that's a compliment. I hear that from uh, people who uh, speak here as a guest. They say, man, do people just love to hear God's word. It's refreshing for many of them. We want our facility to be a place that blesses the community. We see our presence here physically to be important. All those things, that's just kind of who we are as a people, as Wawasee well Bible. And then the third thing you have to look at is what are some of the passions of, especially those in leadership in our church? What are we passionate about? We're passionate about Jesus being first, that, that it's all about Jesus, that it's not about any one person or personality. Uh, that we wanna have unity as a church family and health. We wanna have clarity in how we speak and teach God's word and talk about things. And, and so with simplicity that's understandable for everybody, those who uh, have a ton of education and those who don't have much, because our communities, generally speaking, have, have lower education. That's okay, that's just, this is where God put us. So we wanna speak with simplicity and clarity. And we also have a passion for advancement of not staying where we are, no sacred cows, moving forward and seeing lives transformed. And so the reason I bring all this up is just to give you kind of the behind the scenes look at where some of this over the next four weeks is coming from because where those three things intersect is really where you find the foundation for all we're gonna be talking about the next few weeks. Kind of the uniqueness of our church and so this process, as we looked at that, discovering our DNA, it kind of led to a handful of things, rewriting our bylaws, and eventually uh, in 2013, eventually in 2016, a new mission statement and articulating core values. Again, not just from scratch, but discovering those things of who we are. Then a unique pathway of gather, grow, go, and then even last year, some unique outcomes you're gonna hear about in the next few weeks, and culminating finally in a unique vision for our church heading out into the year 2030. All of that frames up and shapes where we believe God's taking us. And so we're gonna be talking about that over the next few weeks, and I encourage you to just be here. It's gonna be fun to look at where God is taking us and what he has in store for us. And uh, we've seen his hand at this all along the way. 
But again, I share all of that at the very front end just to say, you need to know none of this is haphazard. None of this is like, man, what did Josh have for breakfast this week? Because he's talking about all kinds of stuff. No, this is a very deliberate process. It's been a journey we've been on for years. For me personally, over a decade. And by knowing who we are, we can really see more clearly where we're going in the future. Uh, and God has been at work here in great ways for 37 years now. Isn't that great? We can bless the Lord for that. Now, uh, as we get started, um, you might be tempted to think, okay, well, what kind of vision can you have, Josh, in a small town? I mean, we live in a really, we just talked about it, a rural area. It's a small place. And sometimes we might think even that our church, being a smaller church compared to like mega churches, right? Like, well, what impact could we really have? I mean, there's, you know, 400 people in our church, but there's like 70,000 people in our county. What kind of impact can we really have in this small place? Well, here, let me tell you something. When God came in the flesh, in the person of Jesus Christ, do you know where he went? He went to small towns. He went to really small towns. He's only recorded going into the city a few times, but from that small place, he did incredibly big things. He changed the world to the point that 2,000 years later, on, on pretty much the exact opposite side of the world, in another set of small towns, we're all sitting here learning about Jesus and, and from his word and benefiting from that. And so God loves to do big things in small places. And that's, that's my hope, extraordinary things in very ordinary places. And so just like Jesus, Jesus was sent to those places. Uh, let's start talking about this a little bit, what it means for us, and looking a little bit at God's word as long as we go, uh, as we go along, excuse me. And the first thing just to recognize is that we are sent. We're sent. You know, Jesus was sent into the world. How's John 3.16 go? For God so loved the world that he gave, right? That he gave his only son, that he sent him into the world to save us and redeem us and give us hope. And Jesus later, when he's praying in the garden on the night before his death, he prays and he says, Father, I'm praying for all my disciples and not only these 12, but everybody who's gonna believe after them, which includes you and me, if you believe in Christ. And do you know what he prayed? He said, Father, just like you sent me into the world, I'm sending them into the world. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're a sent one. You're a missionary. You've been sent. Uh, in fact, Jesus said it then to his disciples later that night in John 20. He said to them again, peace be with you as the Father has sent me. <coughs> Even so, I'm sending you. I'm sending you. Do you know these are some of Jesus' final words to his disciples? Have you ever... Um, just you think about that. What are some of the final words of people you love that have spoken, have been spoken to you? You might remember some of them, right? Well, these are some of the very last words Jesus speaks to those who are closest to him. As I was sent by the Father, I'm sending you. And then he tells them, go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And I'll be with you always, even to the very end. Those are big words. And you might think, okay, well, where's he going to send me? Because uh, I don't know, Josh. I don't really want to be a missionary in Africa. He might send you to Africa. I don't know. But do you know where I know he has sent you? In the place you're at right now. Do you know where I know he sent me? 
in the place I am right now. How do I know that? Well, God's word tells me that, right? Uh, Look with me at Acts chapter 17. See, God has sent you and I here. He made from one man, uh, Paul's preaching here, telling the story of God and of the gospel, and of from one man, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. And he determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Here's what Paul's saying. God, from the very beginning of time, determined where each one of us was gonna grow up, where each one of us was gonna live. He could look from eternity past into the future and know he's gonna have Josh Wyland in rural Indiana for at least 20 plus years, and he knew exactly where I would be. He knew when there was nothing here, when this was a a cornfield, when this was a farm, He knew that you and I would be sitting here in this place right now, hearing from his word. He's appointed the times and places and boundaries of our dwelling places. That's language of being sent. He sent you and I here then, is what that means, just like Jesus was sent. And he sent, just, just as the Father sent Jesus, he sent you and I, and he sent us to a specific place. He sent Jesus to a small town, of a couple hundred people called Nazareth, where he grew up. Later, he would spend time and set up his base of ministry in another small town called Capernaum, on the north edge of a lake called Galilee. And this lake was so large, uh, as lakes go, that the whole region surrounded it was called Galilee. Named after the lake, right in the middle. Uh, Does that sound familiar? Like that whole area called Wabasee, named after the lake in the middle? Capernaum was one of the larger settlements of Galilee, but it was still pretty small, maybe 600 to 1,500 people. Small towns. And other small towns like Bethsaida and Tiberias surrounded the lake. Small towns of 600 to 1,500, maybe 2,000 at the most. Not at all unlike the area we live in. With a lake in the middle, surrounded by towns of 1,500, 2,000, some smaller Friends, in a number of ways, Jesus was sent to a place not at all unlike the place you and I have been sent. And as the Father sent him, so he has sent us. And not only to a specific place, but to a specific people. So let's get more specific even than our area. Let's, let's talk about you as an individual. Uh, where have you been sent? And to whom have you been sent? Think about it. Maybe even jot some notes down. You don't have many on your paper for me this morning so that you could write. But who are you sent to? Your family. That includes your immediate family, your extended family, your distant family, your in-laws. You were sent to them. You were sent to all of these people in your family. You were sent to your neighborhood. God knew from eternity past where your house was going to be today. And he even knew, even if uh, maybe that's not of your choosing and everything went haywire in your life, he's still so good and so in control that he still knows that's where you are gonna be today. So your neighborhood, your part of town, your subdivision or within two or three doors of your house, he, he knew your workplace, who you would talk to every day of the week, who you, whose cubicle you'd sit next to, who you'd work next to on the line, who you'd interact with on Zoom. And he sent you to those people to your division, your work group, your immediate coworkers, <coughs> and God didn't make a mistake 
putting you where he puts you. Uh, Again, he determined the allotted periods and the boundaries of the dwelling place of everyone. He sent you there. You get in the picture? We're a people who are sent as ambassadors of Jesus, sent to a specific place and a specific people. But why? Why would he send us? Well, he sent us like he sent Jesus. And why did he send Jesus? To love. See, uh, John 3, 16, we know, right? God so loved the world. He gave his one and only son. Whoever believes in him wouldn't perish, but have eternal life. And then Jesus goes on and he says in verse 17, and I didn't come in the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. I didn't come in to to be angry about everything happening in culture, but to love the culture so that they would see the error of their ways and turn to me too. We're sent to love, like Jesus was sent to love. And that's the great commandment. I mean, to love God and love people. You know, one time uh, some of the scribes and leaders, they heard Jesus making some pretty good arguments. And so one of these guys, they asked Jesus, he said, hey, of all the commands you're teaching us about, which one's the greatest? Which is the greatest? And this question gets asked of Jesus multiple times. And uh, in this case, though, it's actually a friendly, teachable question. Sometimes they're trying to trap him. But in this case, he, he really wants to know. And so here's how Jesus answered. He said, well, the most important is hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind and all your strength. You're to, to love God and love people. We also read earlier from Luke chapter 10 where a man comes to Jesus and he asks who his neighbor is. Because remember, you're, you're sent to love the people you're next to in your neighborhood, in your workplace, in your family. You've been sent to him just like Jesus was. And so uh, Jesus tells them to love their neighbor, love your neighbor as yourself. And so somebody asks, well, okay, well then who's my neighbor? Because I don't like some of my neighbors. I think maybe that was what was going on in the background of his question, right? Who, who are my neighbors? Well, one day an expert of the religious law stood up to test Jesus asking him this question. And um, said, teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Well, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? Jesus asked. And it's the same questions as in Mark 12. The man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, your strength, all your mind, love your neighbor as yourself. Right, Jesus told him. If you do this, you'll live. You'll have real life. Then the man wanted to justify his actions. So he asked Jesus, well, okay, but who's my neighbor? Who do I really need to love? And as we unpack this parable a little bit, one of the things we're going to see is that being sent to love, following Jesus, is costly. It costs us something. It costs us some convenience. It costs us maybe our reputation at times, it costs us our finances at times. It's costly. So Jesus replied with a story. He said, um, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed and they left him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was coming down that road. And at this point, the, the, the guy who asked that question had to go, all right, well, let's hear what he does because he's going to help this guy. He's a priest. He's a good man. And Jesus says, but when he saw this guy uh, on the side of the road, he passed on the other side. He just ignored him. 
So likewise, the Levite, one of the worship leaders, when he came to that place and saw him, he passed on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, the lowest of the low in their culture, when he journeyed, he came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion, the thing that the other two should have had. And he went to him, and he bound up his wounds, and pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to the inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii, two days wages, and gave it to the innkeeper, saying, hey, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I'll repay when I come back. That'd be like if you or I, we found somebody who was hurt and out of luck, and we put him in a hotel, I don't know, probably 100 bucks a night, Pay for two nights, and then however else long he stays, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll get that when I come back. Just put it on my card. That's incredible generosity and compassion, isn't it? And then Jesus asked the question. He says, so which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the guy said, well, it's the one who showed him mercy. He was the real neighbor. And then Jesus said, okay, well, you go and do likewise. He doesn't tell him specifically who his neighbor is. He just says, as you go, everyone you're sent to, everyone you come in contact to, contact with, go and do likewise. Show mercy and do justice and walk humbly with God. Now, why is it that Jesus can command us to do that? And well, obviously he's God, but what would motivate us to do that other than just fear of, well, he's going to be angry if I don't. (laughs) That's the tactic of religion, right? Measure up or it's not going to go well for you. Well, we're sent to love people. And the thing that motivates us to do that is because you and I are loved. It's because we're loved. Jesus sends us in love and we're motivated to do that because we are loved. Have you noticed uh, there's a giant sign as you come in on the door, by the door? It says, you are what? Love. That's, what, that's the foundation of, of who we are as a church, friends. We're loved by God, and because we're loved, we're sent to love. And the heart of our church, the DNA of this church when it was founded 37 years ago, and over the decades since has been Uh, because we're loved, we want to love others. And we want people to know that they are loved by Jesus and they're loved by us. And so we're sent to love people. We're sent to love them and invite them to follow Jesus with us. And you know, the reality is that people in our our culture, in in our world, in, in our neighborhoods, in our families, long to be loved. You know, that's just a common desire of every human being. I've never met anybody who just said, I don't want to be loved. I don't want anybody to like me. If they say that, they're not being very honest, are they? I mean, the Beatles kind of had it right. 1967, they made a proposition that encapsulated the gospel and they didn't know it. (laughs) It was kind of the hope of, of their time. Do you know the song? All we need is love. 
Oh, a few of you did it, different keys, but it was good. Da, 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 da. All we need is love. Da, 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 da. All we need is love, love. Love is all we need. And the thing that they miss on that is that God is love. And sadly in our culture, love has become God, <laughs> but God is love. And Jesus is what you need. He's who you need. And everyone needs that. Um, Ed Stetzer writes this about that. He says, in their song, we find a grain of truth that speaks to the human condition. Not only do we all love, but we are innately drawn to the idea of being loved. We understand the power of our own desires, and so we long to be the objects of the desires of another. All the components of love, dignity, respect, affirmation, encouragement, service, they're, they're magnetic even if the sin and brokenness of this world distorts how we interpret them. No wonder, he writes, this Beatles hit captures the modern imagination almost as powerfully as it did in the 60s. 50, 60 years ago. Some churches even seem to have picked up on the sentiment in this anthem, repurposing with phrases such as, love everyone always, and you are loved. It's just a sentiment of, of, of desire that people long to be loved. I can't tell you the stories. Uh, it happens regularly where somebody will be driving by and they come in the church because they saw the sign and it was one of those days. And some of you, you've started coming to church here because you saw that sign and you had a desire to be loved and to know God's love. And we all long for that because we're made in God's image and God is Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit exists in a loving unity. It's just, it's part of who we are as image bearers. We long to be loved like God is love. And it's both a desire and a need to love and to be loved. It's God's very nature. At 1 John 4, 8 says, anyone who doesn't love doesn't know God because God is love. John 17, Jesus prays, now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And he goes on and he says, I desire that they also whom you've given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Well, love is just this foundation of, it's God's character and it's, it motivates all we do as a church. And you just need to know as we start this series, you are loved. It really is like the, the kingdom concept of our church where it's how we see God's kingdom being uniquely orchestrated and uniquely lived out among us at Wawasee. Loving Jesus, loving people in genuine, tangible ways. That's why we cancel a service in the spring and we go out for engage. That's why you're gonna hear about some other things coming this fall and over the year of just ways to reach out and love our community. But let me also challenge you that that love starts not just out there, it starts in here. Let me encourage you to continue loving one another well. Get connected in a life group or in a group of friends in our church to where you can be known and to where you can know others 
And uh, God uses the fuel of that by his spirit to grow you and to grow our church and then to expand that out to others who are longing to be loved like you and I are loved by Jesus. I'll end with three scriptures and we'll sing and call to morning. The ways you can know you're loved. Number one, Romans 5, 8. God shows his love for us that while we were still his enemies, Christ died for us. And he goes on and says, you know, sometimes somebody would die for a, well, they'd rarely die for a good person, but maybe sometimes they would. But nobody dies for their enemy. That's how great his love is for you and me. When we were sinners and enemies, he died for us. Number two, the reason we love, 1 John 4, 9, is because he first loved us. It's the foundation of who we are. And then Ephesians 2, 4, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, adopted us as his people and made us part of his family and saved us by his grace. So friends, as uh, we head out this week, as kind of school gets going again and everybody's schedule gets started again, and as we look here over these next few weeks, kind of priming the pump this morning for where is God taking us? Let me just remind you on the very front end, we're sent. We're sent people. We're people who are sent to love. We're sent to love people who long to be loved like we've been loved and are loved by Jesus. Amen? Let me pray, we'll sing, we'll call it a morning.